So when you look at Africa, a population of about 1.1, 1.2 billion people for the pharmaceutical industry, they've neglected this market. So normally you'd expect that where you have a lot of disease, then that means there's high demand and then supply naturally flows there. That doesn't work for Africa. What actually we've seen is that the 1.1, 1.2 billion of us, we are actually about 4% of the global pharma market. In terms of population-wise, we are probably about 11% of the global population. And we have about 25% of the global disease burden. The appropriate way to deal with health issues in Africa is to ask, how do we flip this into an opportunity? How do we create local value chains? How do we create wealth as we solve this problem? You're listening to Aid Evolve, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about health innovation in Africa. That voice you heard in the intro, as well as our guest today, is Robert Karanja, the co-founder and chief innovator at Vilgro Africa. Vilgro is one of a small number of tech incubators focused exclusively on health innovation in Africa. So of course, I knew I needed to get them on the pod. Be sure to stick around for the end when Robert shares his predictions for the future of genomics in Africa and the next great venture he's about to embark on. Robert himself is a fascinating man. In addition to co-founding Velgro seven years ago, he's also been CEO for much of its existence. Before that, he got his PhD in medical parasitology, which is, yeah, a word I just learned, as part of his quest to figure out a cure for malaria. But over the years in various research positions, he realized that the problem with malaria wasn't scientific. It was financial. There just wasn't enough attention and investment available in that space to really move the needle on health in Africa. Robert spent almost a decade at Kenya's top medical research institute, Kemri, but even while he was there, started to grapple with the question of, okay, how do I take research and bring it out into the world? Then he looked down the street to Strathmore University, one of the leading business schools in Kenya. As it turned out, Strathmore was just on the brink of launching Kenya's first MBA program for health management. This was Robert's first foray into fostering entrepreneurship in Africa. Here's Robert explaining how he became the academic lead for the bio-entrepreneurship program at Strathmore University. And so I thought to myself, how do we have a program that can be, can be able to take scientists and teach us to be entrepreneurial? And so I started reaching out to business schools huh. uh, with a concept saying, I'd love us to have... So first of all, I had to look at MBA programs, kind of give myself my own education in, <laughs> in my own informal in MBA, then start to structure a course that could actually deliver so that we don't have to do the, everything that's in an MBA, but it takes what we bring in and then builds around it so that there's sufficient knowledge to be able to talk business. And um, the first business school was a sound rejection. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. And then, Yikes. And, and then a good friend of mine said, you know what, why don't we try Strathmore? And, and, and it was very interesting. Strathmore is literally just down the road from Cambridge. And it's mm. one of the leading business schools we have in, 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 in Kenya, in, 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 indeed in, in the region. And so I walked there very timidly with my concept note. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, 
they were setting up the first MBA program for healthcare management in Africa. And they have good timing. A, a lead person. Yes. I mean, some of these things you look at it and you realize the timing, you can never control timing, only God can. And so I give a lot of credit to God for, for some of a lot of my staff because hmm. this gentleman that was setting up the MBA program happened to have been ex biotech VC. And so he listened to me, looked at my program and kind of like, you nice. know, yes, he's called uh, uh, Professor Steve Samut. He teaches at University of Pennsylvania. So he looked at me and with a, an amazing poker face. And I'm thinking, oh boy, this was, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fool of myself. <laughs> and then, he just a smile. He just nodded and said, I, I think I know one or two things about this. Uh, why don't you watch <laughs> and that was it. So the next thing I knew, wow. we we we, let, we worked closely together, and he helped me polish the concept, helped me recruit an amazing faculty, uh, both local and North American. Um, nice. For example, I had one of the uh, former deputy directors of the FDA, US FDA, oh, wow. on my. That's useful. That's so useful. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, just for context, getting regulatory approval on devices or on software is such a huge marketing enabler. I mean, investors, and, and we're doing this amazing program at Strathmore called Bioentrepreneurship. And because nobody understood what bioentrepreneurship is, <laughs> Strathmore, again, allowed me to run the program. They met the entire cost of running this program for free for one oh, year. Wow. Just wow. so that we could seed the ecosystem so that people would mm. understand what is this entrepreneurship. So I had to walk around and invite the heads of all of these universities, research institutions, government agencies that are interested in innovation to come and sit in this classroom. And of course, they'd be looking at me thinking, young man, what do you think you have to tell us? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but it was a success. And then two years later, I'm looking at it and I realized these guys that have gone through this program, it's an amazing program. None of them is actually putting what they've learned to practice. And, hmm. and, and, and the reason was the, the, the no-do gap was just too big. So they needed hmm. somebody who could provide some hand-holding, uh, in essence, incubate them to actually help them become, you know, to actually translate their, their innovations to, to practice. So... I then said, okay, how do we get an incubator going? Fortunately, I think I do have a big mouth. So there's this thing Vilgro in India. <laughs> but what thinking, so Vilgro is one of the oldest impact incubators globally. So we've been around now for about 21, almost 22 years. 2013, 2014, they were being told, you guys are doing amazing work. You need to scale this. The world needs to have this Vilgro model in other places. So they did their market research looked at Africa. They saw what you were doing at Strathmore and they said, let's take this to the next level. Yes, exactly. So, so we yes. were connected and uh, the next thing I knew is I was no longer working just with a concept, but I actually had a backer that had made a financial commitment to enter this market. They had already narrowed down to health sector, but they didn't have any health expert. And so I came on board and from 2015 was led the team uh, as a CEO in setting up Bill Growth. Uh, Kenya's operations at that time were Vilgro Kenya. Um, That's so exciting. And, 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 was, 
Did yeah. they just, so, so how, how did it work in practice? Did they just write you a check and say, Robert, go make an incubator or, <laughs> or what? <laughs> so, so it's interesting. So we, what we, what we set up was a franchise. So, uh-huh. so we needed to understand the build grow model in depth. My co-founders, Wilfred, who is our current CEO, had lived and worked with, in, within the Vilgro system for a year prior ah, in, in India. In India or somewhere else. In India. Back. And then now he had the job of recruiting co-founders. Ah. And then we were able to get really amazing support from the Lemelson Foundation, which is a family office from uh, based in the U.S. Does Vilgro have a specific, like Vilgro Global, do they have a specific focus on health? Um, or is that just the approach in Africa? This is interesting because in India, uh, Vilgo does health, does agriculture, does ICT, renewable energy, and I think, yeah, those four. And I think there's been some element of education. But I think out of the learnings from India, they actually say to us, we think if we were to do it all over again, we'd probably take one sector so that we actually have like significant depth in terms of understanding and knowing. So, so that the quality of support you give to entrepreneurs is not you know, surface level, you can really go deep. And that was awesome because even from innovation systems, what you do, what really works is not having a sector agnostic innovation system at a national level. What you need is every country needs to actually identify what are we really strong at and then have mm-hmm. sector specific innovation systems. Mm-hmm. And for Kenya, I think what we're strong at is life sciences, which is health, yes, and also in agriculture. And, and to some extent, environmental. So, and then we, outside of traditional academia as a knowledge base, we also have an amazing knowledge base in the startup ecosystem for tech. So those are the four areas that I'd think, if you want to invest in Kenya, uh, and, or if you want to build a knowledge-intensive, intelligence-intensive sector, and then those are the four areas that you need to look at. So, so we took health, uh, and we've never looked back, I can see how that would work. They come and they have a sense of what the incubator business model is and how you how you go about picking winning enterprises, investing them and getting the returns yes. on that to build up yes. the ecosystem. But then it was your job to understand what's going on in, in Kenya and then in Africa. It's your job to pick yes. um, the right investments and then to support them on their success. And, and that must have been a whole journey in and of itself. What were some of the challenges in those first few years? I was a steep learning curve because now I was wearing the private sector hat, not only did I need to support entrepreneurs, I also needed as an entrepreneur to succeed. So the sustainability for Vilgro, <laughs> Vilgro's operations Yikes. in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's our business model? <laughs> how do you ensure that, uh, we, we ask, how do you define sustainable? And for incubators, it's really tough. I think it's very few, uh, you know, I think we all, we all look up to Y Combinator and say, we want to be the next Y Combinator. But, but truth be told, none of us is working in the Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't all be Y Combinators. It's like a, it's a different market exactly. in Kenya. And, and ultimately, like the, the thesis that normally plays out is you pick, uh, you know, winning organizations. Some of them succeed and then they, they yeah. pay back to to Vilgro or whatever the incubator is. Exactly. But you had to adjust the economics so, of so it. Because... We kind of needed to find people who can back us long term in terms of philanthropic venture capital. Then also, uh, I was able to negotiate very achievable goals initially in terms of uh, consultancy revenues. Because again, if our expertise is in health and if we are good, 
Wilfred always likes to say that that should be validated by the market, not by the startups that come to us. <laughs> if you actually have anything uh, that's worthwhile, then you'd also see the market expressing an interest. And sure enough, we've always had either other startups in other parts of the world wanting to scale into Africa. And so we help them in their go-to-market advisory support and, and things like that, or maybe just understanding the regulatory landscape. So, so we've always had to focus on the core business, which is always incubation, but manage consultancy, a consultancy business, and make sure that there's no mission creep so that we never again forget. <laughs> That's tricky. <laughs> and then in terms of the long term, also, like you said, how do you ensure that on the upward side for those successful startups that we incubate, that we actually also have, are we able to capture a slice of that upside? So, and, 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 and I think um, that has been the, the approach. Uh, being entrepreneurial ourselves, making sure we eat the same dog food that we, we, we are so quick to <laughs> recommend for others uh, <laughs> or to prescribe. And then also working with them, the, the startups that we're working with, in helping them to show traction, uh, engaging investors, and always working with the investors' mindset so that even as we start an engagement with a startup, we always want to know which are the likely investors to look at this company. What do they need to be able, to, what do they need to see to invite this company to come to pitch to the investment committee? And then working backwards. So to make sure that our roadmap, our incubation support is driven by, that, by those kind of insights. I love how you frame it because a lot of people think of impact investors as the people who just write the checks. But ultimately, an organization like yours is a business itself. And you need to know like how the yes. returns are going to work, how the relationship um, with companies are, are going to function. And if other people understand that as well, then you can just work together a little bit more Precisely. smoothly. Precisely. Did you ever get it wrong, particularly in, in your first year? Like, did you ever pick a, a losing? <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say losing. You don't have to name them. But did you ever make a bad bet or did you ever structure a deal in the wrong way? And can you share just a little bit yeah. about that? I would not call it picking a bad one because I, I, I think the, the challenge for me is always how do we ensure that if we're an early stage investor and we're an incubator, that we don't do what a normal investor would do. How, how do we demonstrate that our risk appetite is actually much higher? <laughs> and and we're able oh, to... So, so being able to understand these are the reasons why private capital cannot work in this particular space. And, and then mm. ensuring that not only do we work in that space, because our job is to be catalytic. We deploy very little money, but it has to be extremely catalytic. So that fine point is really tough. And for me, I think it took quite a bit of support from India uh, because what I realized very quickly is that it's one thing to read the playbook, but there's so much know-how that can only be transferred from person to person. And, 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 and I was able to work with India in terms of having personnel seconded from India to come and work and with me in building capacity in the team here in, in Kenya. Hmm. And, and that was really amazing. The second thing that was a major challenge was no, no startup actually comes to incubators because of the technical support. <laughs> I wish they did, but uh, yeah, I know. it's true. Because <laughs> they need it. They need the technical support as they much as the, the capital. Support. I think sometimes more than they need the money, but they don't yeah. realize that. 
And, yeah. and so the, the big break for us, because I think we were not be able, being able to attract high caliber entrepreneurs or innovators because mm. we were not be, we have the capacity to put out capital from day one. So around 2017, we were very fortunate that uh, USID took a chance on us and actually gave oh. us capital to be able to deploy in startups. And, and oh, I can nice. tell you from that point onwards, that was totally a turning point in terms of our trajectory because then now yes. the way we were able to position ourselves in the marketplace, we really started attracting top talent, uh, hmm. top entrepreneurial talent, top innovation talent. And, and, and also it became a key signal to other investors or other potential funders that we are not a high-risk entity. Having USID logo brand behind us enabled us to attract more capital, and, and this was really super because it was a, it was a, a, a one a one off in uh, fund funding, so it's not something that we could renew, but we were able yeah. to leverage it. By the time that project ended, we now had more investors coming and working with us and allowing us trusting our selection process. Uh, trusting uh, our due diligence and trusting our uh, our technical support that we give these startups uh, to nice. actually deploy capital with both them sitting on our investment committee. So that 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 has been a really big boost. That you know it took one key uh, investor to change that narrative and and de-risk us for others. Yeah, and it's great to hear that success story, even on. The USAID side, um, you know, for those of us who've been in the aid sector a while, I mean, I admit the USAID definitely has its failed projects, like every organization does. Um, but yeah. it sounds like for you and for the work that Vilgoro was doing in Kenya, USAID's investment was a positive turning point that has allowed you to continue on the momentum that you have right now. So we'll share this story back with USAID <laughs> to do more of this. <laughs> Is it? Is there one or two success stories that um, you'd like to highlight from Vilgro's work? And in particular, successes that worked out for you, like for Vilgro, ones that, uh, I don't know, maybe it's too short term, but either ones that paid back or ones that are on track um, that you're really excited to see how it plays out, both for the market, for the communities, and also for Vilgro? So from, from a portfolio perspective, so far we've not had like an exit where we'd put in money and then now we've gotten... Uh, you know, uh, and, and something X return. Uh, so from that angle, we are, we, it's still a success story in the making, but I think we are pretty we'll close there. to it. So we'll, yeah, hopefully in the next year or two. But then the in terms of just being able to see people who come in, because what we've, been, we've, we've always done is we are typically fast money in. All of mm-hmm. the portfolio companies you look at, when we joined the, or when they joined us, when we started partnering, they were pre-revenue. And then we do, we've seen companies that have been able to roll out, uh, test the market, validate their business model. I think we we, we have companies like Turaco that mm-hmm. does microinsurance, um, not just in Kenya, but in Uganda, all the way to Malawi. Uh, and again, very quick ability to come in and iterate and change according to what the market is, was being able to, 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 to teach them. Uh, and, and that's amazing because then you see all of a sudden that now our work is really impacting people's lives in a very tangible way. 
Another good company is uh, maybe Ilara, um, and, and they're, they're doing, they're, they're working with uh, primary healthcare facilities, providing medical, medical equipment, devices, or gadgets that typically most of these health facilities would, would not be able to afford. So they look around the world and they ask, what are the new technologies that are good bargain in terms of they don't compromise on quality, but they're able to, they, 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 they cost a fraction of what the normal equipment would typically cost. So something like Butterfly, uh, if, you are, if you are familiar with Butterfly, looks like yeah. an ultrasound job, but mm-hmm. it does so much more than an ultrasound with AI, uh, machine learning and stuff like that. And when you put that in the hands of a clinician, it changes the way they're able to provide healthcare. And so for them, they stop losing uh, patients by referring them to the next higher level hospital because all of a sudden now you've increased the capacity of what they can be able to offer. And, and you know, again, a lot of... So what we've seen is a lot of amazing fourth industrial revolution kind of innovations that are really just transforming the way you imagine and the way you deliver healthcare. Another one is Enzi that, you know, we worked with, it's, we worked with Enzi for about four, almost five years now. And for them, they, they kept trying to scale. It was very difficult to convince investors to invest in them because... The investors would always be like, you need to demonstrate to us that your model operates at scale. You need to be having at least 10 clinics. They didn't have the capacity or the capital to, 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 to run 10 clinics or to establish 10 clinics. So mm. ultimately they said, how about we get rid of the brick and mortar business and have a Hela clinic, you know, the way we call an Uber, you can call oh. a clinician to your office or to your home. And they can come in and using point of care diagnostics, they do exactly what would happen in a hospital. And guess what? COVID came. And all of a sudden, none of us wanted to go to hospital. Yeah. What timing? Yeah. And their model just took off. You know, all of a sudden. I can imagine. I'd rather call you and, you know, you come in and you wear the PPEs and, you know, check my kid and. Oh, definitely. And now I'm used to it. Now I don't want it. I still don't want to go yes. to the hospital, even though we've come a long <laughs> way since then. Like if I can get a doctor yeah, to come so, to me, yes. <laughs> but there's amazing <laughs> ways of leveraging the advances we've seen in technology and coming up with business models alongside. So innovative business models alongside uh, innovative technology. And, and then seeing that really beginning to impact people's lives has been really amazing for me. That's phenomenal. That's super exciting, Robert, and looking forward to seeing how these organizations evolve in the years ahead. Now, Robert, I know two years ago you took a step back from the CEO role and currently um, your chief innovation officer um, and, you know, always thinking about the future as you clearly do. What's what's on your mind these days? What's next for you in terms of where you're focusing your energy? I think the two things for me is, uh, first of all, just having an amazing team. So let me let me just say, even from even during my tenure as CEO, having amazing co-founders, Wilfred and Rob, meant I, I, I really knew I had a strong team behind me. And, and in a sense, I think Wilfred kind of played the CEO behind the CEO for some time. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the secret CEO. And drive the, the organization forward. I mean, to me, it's been amazing to just watch what he's doing and, and the current trajectory we are on. So it's been amazing. So we are currently scaling across Africa, uh, looking at how do we set up operations within West Africa. Uh, we are looking to come to South Africa, uh, Southern Africa fairly soon. Oh, wow. Welcome. Um, I mean, <laughs> lots of growth and lots of the team has doubled 
we've seen a lot of growth. Congratulations. Thank you. And this is really not me 100% afraid it would go to a better job. My vision has always been how do we solve the challenge of malaria? And, and if mm. we cannot excite uh, the pharmaceutical industry, the global pharma industry, to look at our neglected diseases and our uh, poverty-related diseases and come and operate here, not as philanthropy, but as real businesses, um, as social ventures, then my approach is we do need to then build these social ventures within the pharma sector uh, from scratch because we don't have them. And so my focus has been increasingly in terms of how do we build uh, an innovative pharma sector. By And, and I'm currently peerheading the establishment of, our, of an innovation hub that would huh. operate as a midway house between what we do as Vilpro, where we can only work with startups to, you know, in a little bit, coming a little bit closer to academia, because they don't understand business, they don't understand startups. So if we put a demand that you must be a startup first to work with you, then what uh-huh. happens is we don't see them in our pipeline, we don't see them in our portfolio. So the Innovation Hub would ideally be able to uh, leverage genomics. And, and the idea here is to build out labs, just like we have in academia, top-notch labs, that give you access to a, a biobank, a, a, geno- a deep genomics platform. And, you know, today with wow. machine learning, it's possible to predict with over 90% accuracy uh, the proteins that our, our, our genes code for. And so the things that we used to do in terms of the, the discovery and development of drugs and vaccines and diagnostics uh, in, in, in the test tube, in vitro, and then in animal studies, we can be able to do a lot of that in silico today. So, so being able to huh. collapse that early, the early stage part of the pharma R&D process to leverage what we're good at in Kenya, again, life sciences, and we're good at tech. <laughs> How do we mm. know bringing these uh, strengths together is what this innovation hub is going to be doing. I had so many questions for Robert about this idea of an innovation hub. First off, why genomics? So we all say that all humanity started from Africa. Now, it's very interesting that when you look at the pharmaceutical sector, a lot of the R&D that's happening right now is driven by genomics. Um, Mm -hmm. But the the proportion of African DNA that is serving as a template for all of this R&D is is really low. I think as as recent as 2019, it was only 2% of all the human genomics out there, whether it is in academia or or, 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 or private sector farmer. So, mm. so there's a need to actually close that gap because to me, I feel like initially my when I started off, my fight was, what's our drug security? Now I'm like, what's our drug innovation security? Because if we're not, <laughs> even, if we're not even part of the template, then clearly what you start seeing is we're moving a lot towards precision medicine and even precision public health, and Africa is being left out. Yeah. And it's kind of like, even if you think of all the innovations, the vaccines, the, the, the things that have been designed with the 98% of the population outside of Africa, it's kind of horrifying yes. to imagine applying those same medications within Africa, exactly. because it's it's such a exactly. wild card. Like it could be so different here and we're yes. just doing it out of convenience and neglect for these populations. Yes. yes. So, so, so and, then the, and then the reverse side of it is also true. So if you realize that, you know, for example, if you are doing 
developing drugs for vaccines for very rare diseases, especially genetic diseases, uh, and they're trying to work in a place like US. The, the reality is the cost of doing clinical studies is going to be so much because that the target population is so small. If you come to a place that has a much higher genetic variety, then the probability of being able to do to be to do more cost-effective studies is much higher. Being able to recruit faster, sooner. So, so we do need to do a lot of work of of doing the, the genetic mapping of our populations. So it's not only going to be good business for us; it's actually good business for the rest of the world <clears throat> because we there was a study that uh, said there's probably. 10% more genetic variety in the African DNA than we do have in uh, the rest of the world. So, so yeah. then the second thing is also East Africa specifically has the highest genetic variety in the human race. So, so we sit here in Kenya, Uganda, moving from Ethiopia, maybe all the way to DRC. This huh. place is just out of, we, we, we are an outlier. <laughs> we are just the, the melting pot of the melting pot. So, so why don't why don't we want to leverage that, both for our own benefit and for the the, the global benefit? So, to me, there is a clear investment case uh, that to be made for investing in genomics uh, and not just genomics out there, but especially for East Africa, and and in so doing, also being able to, like I said, leapfrog because. If the if all this genetic variety is in my DNA, is in all these people that I see in the, working in the streets, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it sounds unethical to take that and go do the innovation out there and then come back to us as a as a market. <clears throat> to me, I think it would be smarter to say, hey, come, let's create a win-win partnership with pharma, both startups, emergent pharma, big pharma, and build the innovation capacity here. And that way, we're able to maximize the benefits as an economy, uh, as a country, as a region. To me, that is what I'm hoping we can be able to achieve. Robert's arguments are compelling. First, on the science side, the combination of the genetic diversity of East Africa paired with modern innovations in mRNA just seems like there's an opportunity there waiting to be tapped. And on the business side, we could write a book about all the things that are wrong, with the commercial incentives of global pharma today. And so it does seem like there is a space for a new kind of pharma, one that draws on the genetic diversity of Africa and could even target these neglected diseases that Robert's talking about. So I asked Robert, okay, are you going to build that new kind of pharma? And his response gives you a sense of the vision this man has. He's not just going to build a new kind of pharma. He's going to build the mechanism by which Kenya creates the next generation of pharmas. That's what the innovation hub is. To explain his approach, we start off by explaining what is the gap in the current business models and resources of universities, incubators, and startups to solve this problem? Why couldn't he just keep on working with Strathmore, Kemri, or Vilgro to tackle this? The difference would be the business model. Because for Africa, if, if it's a market failure that's actually fundamentally wrong with the health sector, is the solution is to have good science. We've always had good science, but mm-hmm. the wrong business model. So, so <laughs> if you're used to making the kind of margins in markets like US or Europe or Japan, 
Korea, you know, these these countries they can afford to pay high markups. In, in fact, we have part of the model, the business model for pharma is every year just add a markup. Because who cares? There's never any pushback. <laughs> oh man, so many things wrong with that. But <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. That is how that is how the market works. For us, our price elasticity is really short. It's very brittle. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so we need a business model that comes along and starts to understand how do you de-risk a technology? How do you achieve massive volumes with, with smaller margins? and still make the money. You know, at the end of the day, this is what we call the gold at the bottom of the pyramid. So can it work for pharma? I think it can. And, 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 but, but, we, but to me, I don't think there's any incentive really for big pharma to really want to go down that road because they have a cash cow already. But for us who are in Africa, who mm. it's, we're the ones affected by these diseases. When COVID happens, then the global supply chains don't help us anymore. Then it actually is a lot more viable now to build a local innovative farmer than it was before COVID. But we have places, and, and this is very interesting because for Africa, we have those pockets that I call centers of excellence for biotech. Nairobi is one of them. So if we're able to position ourselves and say, now we have this platform technology known as mRNA, we have big farmer, or what would I call emergent farmer like Moderna, setting up mm-hmm. and investing in like Kenya, BioNTech setting up, setting up investing in places like Kigali. I think J&J has been investing in South Africa. What that means is that we can all of a sudden leapfrog and find ourselves at the cutting edge of biotech for pharma and, and, and do it locally. And this, again, was literally impossible pre-COVID. It's there. It's right there for the taking. My next question so if the goal here is to leverage world-class laboratories, why not go through the universities? Aren't they supposed to be the ones with cutting-edge research labs? So the, the reality is that capacity already exists in the universities. The challenge is university, the, 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 we call it the information asymmetry. The things that me and you can take, take for granted as, you know, this is, this is basic knowledge within private sector is completely alien thoughts in academia. It's so true. <laughs> and, it's so and, true. And then, <laughs> it's and, comical and, how true that is. <laughs> yes. And then the second thing is, what are the incentive mechanisms for academia? One of the biggest failures we are having in Kenya, in most of Africa, is the lack of spin of companies. So even mm-hmm. when you have great R&D capacity, and I think Kenya is really blessed in that capacity, South Africa is even more blessed in terms of the R&D capacity. The question I ask is, where's the ROI on that? It can only come from spin-off companies. For me, as an investor, you struggle because you see amazing technologies, you see amazing solutions, but you can't yeah. invest in them because these people are not creating for you the vehicle for investment. And, I see. and the reason they're not creating for you the, the vehicle for investment is that the, the, the divide is so big between industry and academia uh, that that's what I'm saying. What we need is, like you said, a venture studio, that sits, you know, that is sitting close to academia, not within yeah. academia, so that yeah. the, the bureaucraticness, the red tapes, the wrong culture, the, because some of it is also culture, that are prevalent in academia, you can keep them out, but let these people come in, let them invent 
within the venture studio. And that allows them to own the IP outright, as opposed to when I'm there as a university professor, and then by virtue of my being an employee there, then they own the IP of everything I do. So, so all, I, all I need to say is, hey, I love what you're doing. You are thinking in the right direction. Promise me when, you have, when I put out a call, you're going to take a sabbatical, and you're going to come <laughs> and work in these labs. And I'm going to nice. fund you. I'm going to give you the best capacity, just like you have there, but create it outside. Nice. And then the second thing is, this postdoc, you know, you, we, we supervise PhD students, postdoc fellows, and then all of them, because they still don't get a job, they all migrate out of Africa. Yeah, Have that's them true. come and run this company, and you continue supporting them from your position within academia. And that way allows, that allows you to have a better chance as a venture, because then you can be able to mobilize private capital. You can also mobilize research grants. It helps to feel that value of death. That makes sense. That makes a ton of sense, actually. So drawing from your experience, you know the research side, you know the incubator side, you see a gap um, in the yes. space in between. You see a huge opportunity in genomics. And so you want to create an innovation lab, which is going to be really focused on that core technical health space. Um, so you yes. have like an initial sense of, of like a, a product thesis, but the business model of the innovation hub is built around creating startups. Unlike a university, like it's going to be really incentivized to generate a lot of startups and maybe some of them will fail, but some of them might transform the continent and address a global market. I think venture building is probably the most appropriate model for Africa right now. Because incubators and accelerators assume that there's so much already in terms of the, the foundation. And, uh-huh. and to me, what I've realized is not unless you're working with digital, digital innovations, then I agree, you don't need venture builders per se. But mm-hmm. anything, if you're talking of building, you know, manufacturing related sectors, we need to be venture builders. Wow. Such motivating words, Robert. That's phenomenal. Let's leave it there. I, there's nothing I can say that's going to top that. A few questions just to wrap up our show, Robert. First question for you is guidance for startups. Um, So the organizations that come to Vilgro seeking support, what's the most common mistake and or the most helpful differentiator that you've seen? Good question. I I, I think a lot of times the number one question that I think the number one challenge is almost always uh, underestimating the competition. Because when you ask, so do you have any competition? I think especially for innovators, we believe that we are so brilliant and our idea of What? No. And sometimes not even under, not even mapping what is a substitute because whatever problem you're solving, there's all I'm sure there's always a coping mechanism that your customer has. So the question mm. is how do you convince them to ditch that coping mechanism and actually buy your product or your service? That has always been a key, I think I'd see it as the number one challenge or weak side for most entrepreneurs. That sounds right. Advice. If you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh boy. You know, I asked myself, if, if I was to go back to university today, I'd probably study economics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, me too. It's, a... <laughs> it's really fascinating to understand how money works and how it how, And how and minds work. work, how incentives work, yes. right? How markets exactly. work. Yes, and systems. Yeah. And, and, and I think I, I kind of feel jealous of all economists and I also feel jealous. I'm jealous of engineers because I also love that <laughs> engineers think. Because uh, they're also very systems-oriented 
Yeah, so so I'd probably we're a strange breed. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I hear you. A shout out. Would you like to name someone who has inspired or guided your work? One guy I think I'd quickly name Milton Lorre. So he's in my books. He's like just some, an amazing guy. He really is an amazing guy either way. But <laughs> when I first met him, he he was running the very first biotech venture capital firm in Kenya, in East Africa. And um, at the time I was clueless as to what VC is and all that. And it's, <laughs> it's really interesting that as I've been going through this pathway of trying to find out my, my create my own pathway, uh, he's been very instrumental. So, so I call him uh, a personal, I, I have a people I consider my personal board of directors. He, he's the number one. <laughs> oh man, I want a personal board of directors. That's such a good idea. <laughs> and, and Sounds like a great guy. Is Wesley Rono. So those two, I mean, they've been part of all, my entire evolution. They, they, they're always there. Nice. Life hack. What's one habit you've adopted in your life to keep yourself effective, productive, or motivated? Ah, so I, I think I realized I don't need to be everything. So I, nowadays I, I've learned how to skew the game to my strengths. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I'm not a morning person, so I don't do stuff before 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> you got to know your body's rhythm. Everyone has one. <laughs> yeah, but, but in essence, all I'm saying is if you're a Kenyan, uh, chances are of you succeeding in mid-distance and long-distance races are much higher than sprint. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a marathon. So just pick your race according to your strengths and don't try to follow... What is it that pays the most? That If you're good, you'll rise to the top. Excellent advice. Last question, just for fun, is if you could recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast that you enjoy just from personal interest. Wow. This may not have anything to do with... Uh, That's okay. Anything, That's but, totally uh, okay. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Just Amazing! I, 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 Amazing, Robert! <laughs> well played! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. That's a classic. That's timeless. People are still yes. going to love that in 50 or 200 years. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh. Robert, for people that are listening to our conversation that want to learn more about you or, or Vilgro or, or the next thing that you're working on, what's the best mm. place for them to get more information? Uh, definitely, I think our website, we... One of the things I'd say, I think one of the the really good critiques that I've always gotten is we don't do a great job of talking about ourselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> yes. I'm going to fix that. <laughs> so the website, it's vilgroafrica.org, and that's vil with two L's, not one. Thank you so much for your time today, Robert. It was a real pleasure having you on the show today. Same, same. Now I've realized I I truly have the gift of the gap. So I need to go shut up. (laughs) Robert has approached health, innovation, and entrepreneurship from every angle. First through his PhD and his work at the Camry Research Lab, then through the Strathmore Business School, and finally through his work founding and leading the incubator, Velgro. But that's not the end of Robert's story. He's setting out now to launch this innovation hub. One that has the right business model. This innovation hub will have the research capabilities of a university, but with a mission beyond just publishing papers. It'll have the business acumen and incentives of an incubator, but with the deep technical knowledge needed to make groundbreaking scientific progress. And it'll be a home 
for the massive scientific talent that exists in Africa that's looking for its path to commercialization. Vilgro alone is enough of a platform if we're just talking about a digital or a software startup. But Robert's got his eyes on something more. He's looking at how does the next generation of innovative pharmaceutical companies emerge out of East Africa. Here's a man who's not afraid to think big. If you're an investor, donor, or industry partner who wants to be part of Robert's future, do reach out to him. You can connect through the Vilgro website or reach out to me and I'll make introductions. My email is rowena at aidavault.com. I hope you enjoyed the show today. What do you think about Robert's idea? Will it work? Will it not? What else would you like to know about venture building in Africa? Reach out to us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Aid Evolved. And if you get the chance, leave us a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm on the road this month, so have patience. You'll hear from me again in a couple of weeks when we hear from Zambia's first technology incubator, Bongo Hive. I'll catch you later. <laughs>